Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria, the great matriarch, reigned over a quarter of the world. To her subjects, she was revered as queen. To her family, she was often feared as a domestic tyrant. Queen Victoria's desire to control her children, I think, was pathological. She ruled the roost domestically and she was just jolly well determined that her children were going to behave like subjects. As they grew into manhood, her sons could break free from Victoria's clutches, but the daughters were always kept on a far tighter rein by their demanding mother. Everything with Victoria was about me, my needs, my need for love, my need for care, my need for company. It was never ever really a case of what can I do for them. In danger of being suffocated, the daughters hit back. Louise is not prepared just to do what her mother says, but always comes out fighting. In a great untold family saga, the headstrong princesses fought to escape their mother. They shocked the queen by forging their own independent lives. And there was more. A marriage to an alleged homosexual. A career risking disease and death. A scandal with a renowned artist. A passion for revolutionary ideas. And in daring to tear up the queen's rulebook, they became unlikely champions of the independence of women. Her daughters, they really wanted to see the position of women changing, and they were all slowly and gradually working in their own societies to try and bring about a change in women's lives. But Queen Victoria was not going to let her daughters go without a fight. Osborne House. Queen Victoria's holiday home on the Isle of Wight, where she and her husband, Prince Albert, came to find peace and seclusion from the world. Here, the royal children could roam freely. Little did they know they were then at the heart of Victoria and Albert's master plan, to mould the perfect royal dynasty, role models for the nation and marriage partners for European royalty. Victoria and Albert had quite well-worked ideas about what the future of their children should be, even down to selecting who else among the royal houses of Europe might be suitable for, for marriage partners. The five royal princesses were not meant to have independent lives. Their destinies were to be controlled by the queen. She let them know at all times that she wasn't just their mother, she was their queen, and they had no chance to disobey her. They weren't allowed to by law. Victoria was to find that she couldn't always have it her own way. In a drama of conflict and determination, as the daughters grew up, they were to challenge their set roles as princesses and women. Clever Vicky, the princess royal, would outrage the queen with her radical ideas. Alice, devoted as a child, so disobeyed her mother that Victoria once called her the real devil in the family. Beautiful Louise was to shock with her rebellious spirit and controversial causes. And loyal Beatrice, who lived chained to her mother's side, 
would bid for freedom through marriage to the love of her life. But in the 1850s, the young princesses were living in an idyllic regal bubble. Privilege was their life. Louise, for example, grew up as a toddler. She would put her hand out if she met anyone in the corridor. Little tiny, chubby little legs wandering around, saw somebody, out would go her hand. They were expected to kiss it, which indeed they did. They were taught never to forget their position as princesses. Their governess told them, Go, my dear. Put yourself in the best place before everybody. In 1861, the settled world of the princesses came crashing down. Their father, Prince Albert, died at the young age of 42. The daughters didn't just have to deal with their own bereavement, but also the overwhelming grief of their needy mother. A governess predicted catastrophe. The worst, far the worst, is yet to come. And no one bore the brunt of their mother's grief more than the four-year-old Beatrice. Victoria clung to Beatrice, absolutely clung to her almost from the moment Albert died. In fact, one of the first things she did when Albert died was rush up to the nursery and grasp the sleeping child to her bosom and took Beatrice into her bed with her. Sweet little Beatrice comes to lie in my bed every morning, which is a great comfort. I so long to cling to and clasp a living being. Beatrice became a sort of mourning toy for Victoria. She cuddled Beatrice to her. And the image that always comes up is, is of her sort of almost like sucking the life out of it. It's almost vampiric, trying to extract something from her that really no four-year-old child can possibly give. Looking back on this, we could say that the way Victoria behaves towards Beatrice almost amounts to a sort of child abuse. Um, it has a very profound effect on Beatrice's psyche, on her outlook, on her whole personality, and it's hard not to see that as cruel. Beatrice was not alone. Albert's death seemed to intensify Victoria's darker side. All of the princesses were to be dominated by their self-obsessed, controlling mother. She really just felt that all she'd ever wanted was her and Albert, and she really makes the children feel dreadful about it. I mean, she seemed to have blamed the children very much. She would, have, I think, much rather have lost her children than her husband. Where once the royal homes, Windsor and Osborne, were places for fun and play, they were now mausoleums of grief. The oldest princess, Vicky, remarked, Everything is so different. The old life, the old customs have gone. Victoria seemed more interested in her past than the children's future. She had her late husband's clothes laid out daily in his dressing room. Hot water for his shaving was delivered each morning. She preserved his apartments exactly as they had always been. There are ways in which Albert's death is never quite acknowledged. There's something about the coming of the next generation that she finds very difficult because I suppose there's a sense in which Albert's death and Albert himself are receding back into history and she's doing absolutely everything she can to stop that from happening. At the time of Albert's death, Victoria's five daughters ranged from four to 21 years old. The princesses had a problem. 
how to cope with their unmanageable mother. Vicky had found independence by marrying a German prince and moving to Berlin. It fell to the 18-year-old Princess Alice to take on the burden of the grieving queen. In a sense, Alice almost took the place of Albert after he died. She comforted Victoria, you know, she tried to be a stable presence, a rock, a rock that Albert had been. She didn't cry in her mother's presence, she held back her tears. She'd cry only alone in her room. She really threw herself wholeheartedly into making Victoria's life bearable. Alice didn't only give emotional support to her widowed mother, she also took charge of the Queen's official business. Alice, effectively, was the only person having close access to the Queen. The whole world was shut out. There were very few people allowed to have any contact with her in those first few months. So Alice would be the one to steer essential papers in her direction that needed signing. But it was very difficult for the business of government after Albert died. And Alice really was effectively the only intermediary. The demanding role took its toll on the young princess. Apparently, physically, it was hard on her because a, a nice, pudgy girl turns into an anorexic uh, wreck and her fiancé was totally flabbergasted when he saw her again. Albert's plan had been to draw Germany and Britain together through royal intermarriage. Before he died, he had arranged Alice's engagement to a German prince, Louis of Hesse. Victoria was in a quandary. She could not bear to lose her daughter, but her late husband's wishes had to be respected. Six months after his death, the marriage went ahead. But there was to be no grand wedding, just a small service in the yellow drawing room at Osborne House. For the grieving queen, her daughter's joy was no cause for celebration. Poor Alice's wedding, more like a funeral than a wedding, is over and she is a wife. I say God bless her, though a dagger is plunged in my bleeding, desolate heart when I hear from her this morning that she is proud and happy to be Louis's wife. It's not, oh, I'm so happy for you, you have a husband who loves you. It's, oh, I'm so sorry for me because I haven't got anyone anymore. And she was like that with all her children. And Alice was allowed out of deep mourning for about a day to wear white and went away with an entire trousseau of black. It was very grim. By marrying, Alice escaped her mother's suffocating grief. Her new life was to be a minor royal in provincial Germany. She was following in the footsteps of her elder sister, Vicky. Three years before, the Princess Royal had been married off to a much grander prince, Frederick of Prussia, and she had been enduring life in the stiff Prussian court ever since. Being a princess in the 19th century sounds absolutely miserable. Vicky, particularly, um, off in Prussia, and very, very isolated, um, very, very um, suspicious of some of the people around her, living a fairly kind of unfulfilled existence. To be propelled off into the world like that and to be planted in an alien environment, I think must have been pretty unsettling. Seeking solace from her family at home, Vicky regularly wrote to her mother, but the letters she received back were not always ones of comfort. On hearing that Vicky was newly pregnant, the Queen wrote to her. The horrid news has upset us dreadfully. The princess valiantly replied. You know I love little children so much. And I own one must feel rather proud to think one has given life to an immortal soul. 
Very fine, dear, but I own I cannot enter into that. I think much more of us being like a cow or dog at such moments, when our poor nature becomes so very animal and unecstatic. Vicky may have been 700 miles from Windsor, but that was no escape from her indomitable mother. The pair exchanged 8,000 letters in what would be a lifelong correspondence that showed both mutual love and the Queen's obsessive and demanding manner. With Vicky, she has the possibility of being her true self, and, and she is remarkably unguarded. I mean, Victoria is one of the great letter writers of the 19th century. She pours out what's on her mind, uh, which is often a stream of anxieties. Your answers yesterday by telegram are not quite satisfactory, and you don't say whether your cold is better or not. Were you feverishly unwell with it or not? I get terribly fidgeted at not knowing what is really the matter. I really hope you are not getting fat again. Do avoid eating soft, pappy things or drinking much. You know how that fattens. They would fire these things off to each other all the time. And the ones that are coming from Victoria are trying to exert from hundreds of miles away the kind of control that she tried to exert over her children, you know, when they were small. And so there were these directives telling Vicky about how to micromanage her life. I wish you for the future to adopt the plan of beginning your letters with the following sort of headings. Yesterday, or day before we did so-and-so, dined here or there, and then where you spent the evening. She ruled the roost domestically, and that, I think, was the, the, the key thing. She was just jolly well determined that her children were going to behave like subjects. Queen Victoria's desire to control her children, I think, was pathological, and I think was that of a domestic dictator. The Queen wasn't just a domestic tyrant. She could seem shockingly unsympathetic. When a pregnant Vicky fell down the stairs and badly sprained her ankle, her mother wrote, I fear you exaggerate, as you so often used to do. Others who do not know your disposition think you are really ill, which you are not. Vicky seemed to be cowed by her mother and often begged for forgiveness. Don't be angry, dear Mama. It is very painful to think I have annoyed you or displeased you. The courtier, Baron Stockmar, was horrified by the correspondence. Her mother is behaving abominably to her. The Queen wishes to exercise the same authority and control over her that she did before her marriage, and she writes constant letters full of anger and reproaches. One issue above all brought Victoria into fierce conflict with both Vicky and Alice in Germany. Breastfeeding. The Queen detested babies. She called them frog-like. Victoria absolutely refused to breastfeed her children, which is kind of surprising because it was becoming very, very acceptable for women, even fashionable for women, to breastfeed uh, their babies. Uh, Upper-class women were doing it as well. The Queen commanded her daughters not to breastfeed their own babies, but Vicky and Alice would later disobey their mother, asserting a woman's right to breastfeed whatever her status. Victoria was disgusted and outraged at her daughter's disobedience. It does make my hair stand on end to think that my two daughters should turn into cows. The Queen took her revenge on her daughter, naming a cow in one of her dairies, Princess Alice. Mm -hmm. 
For years after Albert's death, Victoria's remaining unmarried daughters, Helena, Louise, and Beatrice, were prisoners in the vaults of grief that were the royal palaces. No one found life more claustrophobic than the second youngest daughter, Princess Louise. She constantly chafed against her mother's unyielding grip. Louise was a bit of a rebel, and her mother described her as rather backward and rather difficult, i.e. she was a bit more trouble. She was a teenager just when her father died, just at the age when she thought her world, her horizons would widen, and they narrowed considerably. And she was watched and protected all the time, and it was stifling. Victoria would unleash her power at random. Louise once arranged to have tea with a friend at court, only to be forced to cancel when, on a whim, the Queen stopped her from going. Louise's note of apology to the courtier seemed to be a thinly disguised attack on her mother. The Queen seems not to wish me to leave her. Therefore, I have to ask to be excused, but not without me expressing my great disappointment at not being able to come. Victoria very jealously guarded her children's affections. She really disliked it when they formed close companionships with each other, let alone with people outside the family. She seemed to believe that she had to be the, the kind of flame around which they all revolved. Never make friendships. Girl friendships and intimacies are very bad and often lead to great mischief. Victoria not only prevented Louise from having friendships, she also forbade the entertainments that were usually part of a princess's upbringing. When she was 17, she should have had her coming out dance, as every other girl of her age was having, um, and the Queen refused. She said that she had not opened the ballroom at Buckingham Palace since Albert had been alive, and she wasn't going to do it for any dance for Louise. Queen Victoria's efforts to limit her daughter's social lives may have had its roots in her own isolated and loveless childhood. She recalled her loneliness. I was not on comfortable or at all intimate or confidential footing with my mother. It comes from being this very cloistered only child. And I think she was very hungry for proper human love and attention. And as soon as they knew she was heir to the throne, she was made to feel the center of attention. She was the most important person because she was going to be Queen of England. As a mother herself, Victoria found it difficult to show her children affection, even when they were very young. Only very exceptionally do I find the rather intimate intercourse with them either agreeable or easy. She had very ambivalent feelings about all her daughters, and she's one of those people with a very small heart, Queen Victoria, so if she's liking, say, two or three of the children at once, it means that the other six are, are out of it, and she detests them. Victoria's disapproval could demolish her daughter's self-confidence. As a girl, Louise had once said, I am so stupid and useless. The Queen seemed to judge her children by their looks, always prizing beauty. You are wrong in thinking that I am not fond of children. I am. I admire pretty ones immensely. Victoria was particularly unimpressed with Helena, the middle child, nicknamed Lenchen, whom she criticized for being the least good-looking of the five princesses. Dear poor Lenchen has great difficulties with her figure. 
Her features are so very large and long that it quite spoils her looks. Helena was the plainest of the Queen's children, and she also wrestled with her weight. This was not unusual in Victoria's family. Victoria herself uh, frequently weighed almost 12 stone, despite being only 4 feet 11. But it was Helena who was blamed for not getting grip on her weight. By contrast, the pretty Louise had gained the confidence to stand up to her overbearing mother. Desperate to break away, Victoria's daughter had an artistic bent, which she followed. She took up sculpture and had her own studio to which she could escape. The Queen tried to stop her, believing the art form was not ladylike, calling it unnatural for a girl, and especially a princess. But that didn't stop Louise. Once Princess Louise set her mind to something, she was a powerhouse. She wasn't going to stop. That was her purpose. And as with all things with Louise, one track, I have to get this to happen. I think in choosing sculpture, Louise was probably pushing the boundaries a bit, trying to see what her mother would take and what she wouldn't. As strong-willed as her mother, Louise's determination paid off. Victoria gave in and let her be the first princess to attend a public school. In 1868, Louise went to the National Art Training School, joining the pioneering generation of women who were learning sculpture. But the Queen was horrified by what her daughter would be exposed to. One of the real worries about women enrolling in art class was this problem of what they would do in the life class. The life class is where you draw uh, or look or sculpt from a nude model. It would be much better if she stuck to painting. You paint the spaniels, you paint the ladies-in-waiting, uh, but it doesn't require you, as it were, to get to grips with the, with the human form. Victoria would not stand for such unladylike activity. She limited Louise's attendance at the school by demanding that she stay at home to help with the Queen's large private correspondence. The other students were astonished at how hard a princess worked. They couldn't believe that she was constantly having to miss lessons because she was working. They'd all assumed she'd be some spoilt brat, and there she was working harder than any other woman and men of their acquaintance. Not one to be stopped, Louise persevered and went on to become the first female sculptor to have a statue erected in a public place. The statue, appropriately enough of her mother, still stands outside Kensington Palace in London. I think that Louise was pushing the boundaries of the behaviour of women in the mid-19th century and also in the moulding, if you like, of what we consider the monarchy today. Louise's 25-year-old sister Vicky, living in Germany, was less fulfilled. Able and clever, she had been groomed by Albert to be a force for change in hidebound Prussia. But the reality was that she didn't have the influence she had expected. Without a role, Vicky set herself up as a matchmaker for her siblings. Vicky threw herself into this, um, partly one suspects because it, um, it gave her something to do. It, get, it, it gave her a sense of empowerment and an environment where she so often felt disempowered. The princess set her sights on her sister Helena. Aged 19, this unremarkable young woman was ready to be married off to an appropriate suitor. Vicky found a match that surprisingly delighted the demanding queen. Her German friend, Prince Christian. 
He was 15 years older than Helena, but appeared considerably older than that. He is of moderate height, uh, stooping, bald-headed. Later on, things go from bad to worse. In 1891, Helena's brother Arthur shoots Prince Christian in the eye, a shooting accident. Christian rather takes this on the chin and indeed embraces it as an opportunity for fun and acquires an enormous collection of glass eyes, which at dull moments during banquets or dinner parties, he would summon a footman to bring to the table for the edification of fellow guests. He might have been penniless and homeless, but Victoria was thrilled with her unprepossessing new son-in-law. For her, there was an advantage to his poverty. The Queen knew that by marrying Helena, Prince Christian would have to settle in Britain and live at Windsor with her. She won't allow them to marry anybody who will take them away. So she has to find these rather sort of tame, neutered, well, not, not physically, but I mean, <laughs> politically uh, neutered princes uh, who will agree, have no money, and by princely standards, and will agree to come and live um, in, in Victoria's court because she doesn't want to lose her daughters. So she clings possessively. It makes me shudder. The Queen had told Vicky when she left home. When I look round at all your sweet, happy, unconscious sisters, and think I must give them up, too, one by one. Helena and Prince Christian remained tied to Windsor for the rest of their lives. Poor old Christian, who ended up in this rather absurd role, living on the estate at Windsor, managing Frogmore, managing the park. And it was his job to do things like make sure there weren't too many frogs hopping around at Frogmore. His plan to solve this problem was uh, to import ducks into the estate. The ducks ate the frog spawn, the numbers of frogs were reduced. But this was the kind of thing he had to deal with. You know, he wasn't kind of managing the reunification of Germany. He was worrying about vermin on the estate at Windsor. The marriage may have pleased the Queen, but it angered Princess Alice, who saw it for what it was, a cynical ploy to keep Helena at home. To Victoria's fury, Alice openly objected to the match. The Queen was to call her... A mischief-maker and untruth-teller. The real devil in the family. This was the beginning of a rift between Alice and her mother that would never heal. Victoria didn't support her daughter when, a year later, she was in trouble. Alice was marooned with her young family in the war-torn German state of Hesse-Darmstadt, where they lived. In the decade after she married, they suffered through two wars in which Prussian forces tore Europe apart. Alice wrote to her mother, how I pray some end may soon come to this horrid bloodshed. Oh, the misery around us you can't imagine. But in England, Victoria, still seething from her earlier row with Alice, sent a flurry of vitriolic letters criticising her daughter. She has become so sharp and bitter, and no one wishes to have her in their house. In her exasperation, Victoria became careless. She wrote a letter to Vicky, telling Vicky everything she thought wrong about Alice. But unfortunately, she put the letter for Vicky in an envelope addressed to Alice and vice versa. So Alice got the letter saying, you know, to Vicky, saying all the dreadful things she's done. And when Victoria hears this, she's a bit vexed. But her comment is uh, to say, well, um, it's actually jolly good for Alice to know what her mother thinks about her. <laughs> 
the Queen was unrepentant. First of all, to say how greatly annoyed and vexed I am at the mistake about the letter, which is shocking and, to me, unaccountable. But I think, as it is, no harm is done, but good will come out of it. That's one of the wonderful things about Victoria. She never, you know, she never dissembles. She always just says what she thinks. And I think, in a way, that's rather splendid, because so much of courtly etiquette is about, you know, keeping your mouth shut and being sort of discreet and quiet. Not at all, Victoria. Alice continued to defy the Queen. She found liberation in nursing and medicine, which she knew would shock her mother. Surrounded by injured soldiers in her war-torn German state, she asked Victoria to send help from England. Illness and wounds would be dreadful in this heat. Coarse linen and rags are the things of which one can't have enough. And I am working, collecting shirts, sheets, and now I come to ask if you could send me some old linen for rags. Alice doesn't want to just be one of these um, show nurses who just um, put on an apron and don't do anything. She really wants to be hands-on. This kind of nursing was dangerous. The soldiers were suffering from contagious diseases such as smallpox. Undaunted by the risks, Alice was driven to finding a practical role for herself in the world of medicine, saying life was made for work and not pleasure. Alice's nursing upset the Queen. Though she had praised nurses in the past, Victoria was appalled that a princess of the royal blood should work so closely with the human body and should be so fascinated by its workings. She objected to Alice being interested in obstetrics, in gynaecology, and particularly in Alice quizzing her married sisters and sisters-in-law on such matters as what their childbirth had been like, what their pregnancies had been like. When Louise is going to visit Alice, Queen Victoria writes to Louise, don't be pumped by Alice, be cautious and silent about your interior. And what Victoria meant by that was, don't talk about anything to do with sex or anatomy, because this is not a subject that you should be allowing Alice to be involved in. In the face of her mother's disapproval, Alice stubbornly persisted in her work. Advised by Florence Nightingale, the princess established organizations which revolutionized nursing in Germany. In 1871, she set up beds for the wounded in palace gardens. Alice's actions suggest a way forward for monarchy. It is, if you like, a precursor to the welfare monarchy that we enjoy today, that this is hands-on philanthropy and it's moving away from a white glove detachment. The Queen would get her own back on her defiant daughter. Impoverished by the wars, Alice wrote regularly to Victoria begging for money to fund her royal lifestyle, but most requests were simply ignored. When Alice returned home for a visit, her courtier described how... Princess Alice at Osborne had talked very loudly at dinner about a horse she wanted, quiet enough for herself and strong enough for Louis, but the Queen changed the discourse pretty smartly to the beef and cutlets. Conflict between the Queen and her second daughter had pushed them into near estrangement. But another princess was also causing trouble. Unmarried sculptress Louise was rebellious, and her looks and charm were wreaking havoc. She had lovely 
wide apart blue eyes, this fair hair, curly, she liked to wear blue ribbons in it. She had the best figure of all Queen Victoria's daughters. Slender, she was very fit. She was actually a very well-rounded, delightful person. I think that people enjoyed sitting next to her. She wasn't at all stuffy. One artist said of Louise, If I were a young man, I should not rest until that lovely girl had promised to marry me. But for Victoria, having a beautiful daughter had its problems. In 1869, when Princess Louise was 21, the dashing sculptor Sir Edgar Byrne was invited to stay at Balmoral. He was to teach the princess while sculpting a bust of Victoria's Highland servant and confidant, John Brown. Joseph Edgar Bone was extremely charismatic and good-looking, and right from the beginning there was a wonderful rapport between him and Louise. Queen Victoria had asked John Brown to keep an eye on Louise and Bohm. Um, Louise found him incredibly intrusive. All of the royal children did. They felt he was a spy for their mother. Brown reported to Victoria on the flirtatious couple. He and the Queen were then said to have burst in on the pair as they enjoyed an intimate moment. Louise realised that Brown had been spying. Louise says, John Brown, this is your doing, shakes him by the shoulders and says, either you go or I go. And after this stormy event, the only solution is that somebody must quickly find a husband for Louise. While the princess was not going to be pushed into an arranged marriage to a chinless German royal, the queen had precise ideas for her dynasty. A husband should above all be royal and come from the right stock. The way Queen Victoria described the marriage partners reminds us of genetic engineering or something. I mean, she was really precise. At one point she says she wants some dark hair now, she wants some dark blood in there. They do talk about marriage partners like horse breeding or dog breeding. With a desperate shortage of acceptable princes for Louise, the whole family became involved, each favouring a different candidate. I recommend you to take my advice and not forget Albert of Prussia. He is good. I know the violence of your rich, feelings against him, but I have not refrained from again repeating Lord in the interest is of Lord Camperdown is poor, but he'll be rich at his mother's death. She is the daughter of a remarkably nice young man with such good manners and very good looking. Louise despaired. Everyone is speaking for or against this, and it is most uncommonly unpleasant. And I am to decide without a proper chance of knowing anyone. Louise was a modern woman. She did not want to marry anyone of their choice. She did not want to marry a foreign prince. She was particularly put off Prussian men. She allegedly said that they smelt bad and they had an appalling sense of humour. The Queen herself had to admit there were no suitable princes. Times have much changed. Great foreign alliances are looked on as causes of trouble and anxiety and are no good. With much of Europe at war, she was forced to give up the plan of marrying all her children to European royalty. Victoria turned to a reference book that listed not royals, but aristocrats, Burke's Guide to the Peerage. For once, Louise and Queen Victoria were of like minds that Louise would marry someone British, homeborn. Now, this was completely revolutionary. Eventually, Louise accepted the proposal of an approved candidate. John, Marquess of Lorne, the heir to the Dukedom of Argyle. He was a romantic-looking figure. He had 
uh, this lovely, thick, luxuriant, uh, fair, fair hair. He had Campbell, piercing blue eyes, and was considered cultured. He was politically astute. He had travelled. He had gone to America. He uh, wrote articles. He uh, dabbled uh, in writing poetry. In 1871, Louise and her British aristocrat were married. It was the first time in centuries that a princess had been allowed to marry outside royalty. The public were thrilled. They were really fed up with all this foreign royalty stealing their royal princes and princesses. And they were so pleased. It was the best PR move that Louise could have done. The public at large might have been pleased, but the marriage was an unhappy one. Rumours about Lorne may offer an explanation. When you try to research the Marquis of Lorne here, you come up against a lot of allegedly's, possibly's, maybes about the fact that he was gay. There's a great deal of shrouding it all in mystery. And there's um, an interesting story that Princess Louise, when she and her husband were living in Kensington Palace, had the French windows in their apartments bricked up so that she could stop her husband getting out at night and cruising soldiers in the park. The Queen, in a rare show of sympathy, came to appreciate how unhappy the marriage was. She was very much on her daughter's side, and she was never normally on her daughter's side. So perhaps she had finally been made aware of the true nature of Lorne's sexuality. Scandal would not die down. Much to Victoria's horror, years later, other rumours surfaced, this time over Louise and her relationship with her former teacher, Sir Edgar Byrne. She was visiting him one day in his studio, and he collapsed and died. The gossips all said that he died um, in her arms, uh, in flagranti, uh, but um, it could be that he just died. The princess could not deny that she was at the studio at the time of the sculptor's death. She claimed that she had been chaperoned by a lady-in-waiting. Louise described how, during the visit... Sir Edgar carried a bus to show me when I entreated him not to. He also pushed some heavy things and must have overexerted himself. The Queen was terrified of any damage to the royal reputation. When scandal threatened, she always publicly supported her family. But in private, Victoria continued to fight her never-ending battle for control. By 1872, Beatrice, the baby Victoria had clung to for comfort when Albert died, was her only unmarried daughter. The Queen was determined it should stay that way. She is my constant companion, and I hope and trust will never leave me while I live. Her youngest daughter, always known as Baby, um, occupied a central position in Victoria's emotional life. The consequence for poor Beatrice was that she was babyfied virtually for life. It was a tragic existence. She was sent off to bed early. She wasn't allowed to become an adult. Beatrice was totally cowed by Victoria. Beatrice hardly dared open her mouth at lunch, um, uh, except to put food in it, um, uh, in case she said something her mother jumped on. However much she wanted to, Victoria couldn't keep Beatrice infantilized forever. The opposite happened. Under the stifling control of her mother, she seemed to age prematurely. There is a sense in which Beatrice and Victoria almost become the same age. 
She appears to take on a number of the characteristics of a much older person. She begins to suffer from really quite extreme rheumatism. Um, her figure fills out. She becomes rather portly. Desperate to keep her by her side, the ageing Victoria did her utmost to put Beatrice off marriage. Dinner guests were reprimanded by the Queen for mentioning the words engagement or wedding in the princess's presence. At one point, there's a German prince that Beatrice may have taken a, a bit of a shine to. And so Victoria arranges for this young man, who's very good-looking, to sit beside Beatrice all through a formal dinner, and she instructs Beatrice that she is not to direct a single word to this young man. Uh, this poor young man doesn't know what he's done. Uh, he's absolutely baffled, leaves the table, and obviously thinks, well, that's obviously I misread the signs. Obviously, Princess Beatrice is not interested in me at all. Despite Victoria's scheming, in 1884, Beatrice, the most obedient of daughters, made a bid for freedom. Age 27, she fell in love with Henry, Prince of Battenberg, and announced she wanted to marry. This is the great moment of Beatrice flexing her muscles. This is the one really significant independent action of her life, the only time when she puts up a stand against the Queen on a matter of any importance. She was desperate at that moment to escape and to attain this sort of adulthood. Victoria flatly refused even to discuss the possibility of Beatrice marrying. She's furious at what she almost regards as Beatrice's treachery, and I think that Queen Victoria's response is the cruelest thing that she does in her life. For about six months, Victoria would not talk to her. She communicated her, to her with, with little notes. They were sitting at breakfast together and she would pass her a note with her eyes averted. Because this was such an outrage, she was going against what, what her mother needed. Everything with Victoria was about me, my needs, my need for love, my need for care, my need for company. It was never, ever really a case of, what can I do for them? Eventually, the Queen gave way to her tenacious daughter. Victoria allowed the marriage to go ahead on the condition, once again, that Beatrice and Prince Henry should always remain with her at Windsor. Victoria was uncomfortable with the physical side of her daughter's relationship, she hoped and prayed there would be no results for some time. During the engagement, the Queen had been thankful there was no kissing, etc., which Beatrice dislikes. One of the strangest things about Victoria's attitudes is the way that she seems to resent the sexual and the romantic lives of her children. They become an area of difficulty for her. Victoria did not only need to have power over every aspect of her daughter's lives, she wanted precedence over them too. In 1871, Vicky's father-in-law had been named German Emperor, making her the future German Empress. The Queen was put out by this potential new title. Queen Victoria is rank conscious, and in her own mind, she is the topmost um, reigning monarch in the world. She's quite clear about that. She is therefore troubled by the fact that um, her eldest daughter is going to become an empress and that she herself is not an empress. Not to be outdone, Victoria had the Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli proclaim her Empress of India first. Disraeli was clear about her motives. He is recorded as saying, Her daughter will have imperial rank and she cannot bear to be in a lower position. The Queen also felt threatened by Vicky's intellect. Her daughter was interested in scientific progress and modern thought, ideas which challenged her mother's worldview. Vicky was 
highly intellectual. She was enlightened. She was radical. Queen Victoria said, really, you're, you're so radical, I could almost believe that you're a Republican. Um, so she was very forward-looking, very intellectual, very intelligent, very sympathetic, and really quite unroyal in a strange kind of way. Vicky was that ultimate paradox, the intelligent royal. Vicky shocked her mother by reading Charles Darwin's radical new book, The Origin of the Species, which put forward the theory of evolution. The Queen feared that Vicky was turning into a modern skeptic, as she warned one of her daughters. Don't you listen to her? Don't you let your firm faith ever be shaken? Don't you read those books? Don't follow her advice in many things. Pray, pray, don't. There could be nothing more profane than the work of Karl Marx. Vicky read the revolutionary's Das Kapital and was eager to hear more of his ideas. Careful to avoid enraging the Queen, she asked her friend, the MP Sir Grant Duff, to go and discreetly meet the Communist on her behalf. Grant Duff, having expected to be disgusted and repelled by this firebrand, in fact wrote back that he seemed a, a very genial and rather, rather clever man. Marx was obviously his most charming and asked for his compliments to be passed to um, the, the Princess Royal and her Prussian husband. But it was her daughter Louise's interest in a new movement that made the deeply conservative Victoria's blood boil. The Queen would be a symbol of female strength and independence for generations to come. Despite this, she was horrified by the rise of the women's movement. The Queen is most anxious to enlist everyone who can speak or write to join in checking this mad, wicked folly of women's rights. It is a subject which makes the Queen so furious that she cannot contain herself. It's hard to imagine anybody on this planet has ever been less of a feminist than Queen Victoria. She thought it was positively wicked. She, she thought women belonged in the home. Although she was living at a time when there were lots of people who were beginning to ask intellectual middle-class women and upper-class women why they shouldn't have the vote why they shouldn't go to university, why they shouldn't be educated in the same way that boys were educated. For Princess Louise, female emancipation became a burning commitment. The flame had been lit when she went to see Elizabeth Garrett, the first woman in Britain to qualify as a surgeon and an ardent supporter of women's rights. When the princess arrived, the pioneering doctor was up a ladder hanging wallpaper. Elizabeth Garrett was amazed to see this delightful young lady who was interested in meeting her and wanted to learn all about her training and her education as she was leaving. She said to Elizabeth Garrett, please don't tell the Queen about my visit. Uh, unfortunately, word got out and the Queen was furious when she discovered what Louise had done. It's psychologically interesting that somebody who had been made to really bow down to her mother had managed to reach a point when she was strong enough and feisty enough and independent enough to go against her mother's wishes and to do what she wanted to do in terms of meeting this woman who was single-handedly changing female history in Britain. In 1866, Garrett and other prominent women had signed one of the first petitions demanding votes for women. Louise supported the controversial movement, but she didn't sign. As a royal, she wasn't allowed to take a political position. As Victoria reached old age, the daughters became more daring, but still had to work hard to avoid their mother's wrath. 
although Victoria had uh, an amazing kind of surveillance system and kept tabs on absolutely everybody, I think the daughters were very, very good, as it were, of sort of going under the radar and getting involved in activities that they knew Victoria would not necessarily be approving of, but they did it nonetheless. Victoria had always encouraged giving to charity, but her daughters took the idea of philanthropy one step further. In later years, Princess Louise became known for her work with hospitals, tirelessly visiting wounded soldiers and encouraging nurses. She devoted much of her life to helping women find new roles at a time when they were expected to stay at home. She herself worked vociferously in female education and in getting women into work. It was very touching, actually, that she wanted to work so hard in an area which she very much felt, together with her sisters, that their mother was neglecting. Other sisters also developed a deep interest in the position of women. Helena was one of the founders of the British Red Cross, helping women get into medicine. In Germany, Vicky and Alice broke new ground, setting up organizations for women that encouraged them to earn an independent living. As the 20th century dawned, women started to join the workforce in greater numbers than ever before. By sheer determination, the daughters had not only escaped their mother's clutches to carve new paths for princesses, but had helped to redefine the female role. Victoria's daughters open up a whole set of possibilities for uh, middle-class and working-class women towards the end of the 20th century. Things like nursing, social work, local government work, teaching even, become professionalised. They grow out of that philanthropic moment and become career possibilities for, for ordinary middle-class women. The daughters may have been quiet revolutionaries, but they were always conscious of protecting the royal image. After Victoria's death, Princess Beatrice edited and transcribed all of the late Queen's letters and journals. She burnt most of the originals. The princess tried to ensure that posterity would only see the best side of Victoria. But try as she might, she couldn't hide the fact that her mother had been headstrong, emotional and controlling. Characteristics that her daughters also inherited. Queen Victoria found her daughters difficult a lot of the time. And yet, of course, when you look at these strong personalities and their radical interests and their, their great desire to bring about change, stems from them being the daughter of this very strong-willed woman who was running the empire. She'd wanted them to have that strength in many other ways. She just didn't like it when it came up against her. Next week, the focus is on Queen Victoria's sons and how they struggled to meet expectations. That's at the earlier time of 6.30. You can buy, download and keep the series through BBC Store and other suppliers. Next, Dad's Army. Beautiful Louise was to shock with her rebellious spirit and controversial causes. And loyal Beatrice, who lived chained to her mother's side, would bid for freedom through marriage to the love of her life. But in the 1850s, the young princesses were living in an idyllic regal bubble. Privilege was their life. Louise, for example, grew up as a toddler. She would put her hand out if she met anyone in the corridor. 
little tiny chubby little legs wandering around saw somebody, out would go her hand, they were expected to kiss it, which indeed they did. They were taught never to forget their position as princesses. Their governess told them, Go, my dear, put yourself in the best place before everybody. In 1861, the settled world of the princesses came crashing down. Their father, Prince Albert, died at the young age of 42. The daughters didn't just have to deal with their own bereavement, but also the overwhelming grief of their needy mother. A governess predicted catastrophe. The worst, far the worst, is yet to come. And no one bore the brunt of their mother's grief more than the four-year-old Beatrice. Victoria clung to Beatrice. Go, without a fight. Osborne House, Queen Victoria's holiday home on the Isle of Wight, where she and her husband, Prince Albert, came to find peace and seclusion from the world. Here, the royal children could roam freely. Little did they know they were then at the heart of Victoria and Albert's master plan, to mold the perfect royal dynasty, role models for the nation and marriage partners for European royalty. Victoria and Albert had quite well-worked ideas about what the future of their children should be even down to selecting who else among the royal houses of Europe might be suitable for, for marriage partners. The five royal princesses were not meant to have independent lives. Their destinies were to be controlled by the queen. She let them know at all times that she wasn't just their mother, she was their queen, and they had no chance to disobey her. They weren't allowed to by law. Victoria was to find that she couldn't always have it her own way. In a drama of conflict and determination, as the daughters grew up, they were to challenge their set roles as princesses and women. Clever Vicky, the princess royal, would outrage the queen with her radical ideas. Alice, devoted as a child, so disobeyed her mother that Victoria once called her the real devil in the family. Queen Victoria, the great matriarch, reigned over a quarter of the world. To her subjects, she was revered as queen. To her family, she was often feared as a domestic tyrant. Queen Victoria's desire to control her children, I think, was pathological. She ruled the roost domestically, and she was just jolly well determined that her children were going to behave like subjects. As they grew into manhood, her sons could break free from Victoria's clutches, but the daughters were always kept on a far tighter rein by their demanding mother. Everything with Victoria was about me, my needs, my need for love, my need for care, my need for company. It was never, ever really a case of, what can I do for them? In danger of being suffocated, the daughters hit back. Louise is not prepared just to do what her mother says, but always comes out fighting. In a great untold family saga, the headstrong princesses fought to escape their mother. They shocked the queen by forging their own independent lives. And there was more, a marriage to an alleged homosexual a career risking disease and death, a scandal with a renowned artist, a passion for revolutionary ideas. And in daring to tear up the Queen's rulebook, 
they became unlikely champions of the independence of women. Her daughters, they really wanted to see the position of women changing, and they were all slowly and gradually working in their own societies to try and bring about a change in women's lives. But Queen Victoria was not going to let her daughters be marked. Everything is so different. The old life, the old customs have gone. Victoria seemed more interested in her past than the children's future. She had her late husband's clothes laid out daily in his dressing room. Hot water for his shaving was delivered each morning. She preserved his apartments exactly as they had always been. There are ways in which Albert's death is never quite acknowledged. There's something about the coming of the next generation that she finds very difficult because I suppose there's a sense in which Albert's death and Albert himself are receding back into history. And she's doing absolutely everything she can to stop that from happening. At the time of Albert's death, Victoria's five daughters ranged from four to 21 years old. The princesses had a problem, how to cope with their unmanageable mother. Vicky had found independence by marrying a German prince and moving to Berlin. It fell to the 18-year-old Princess Alice to take on the burden of the grieving queen. In a sense, Alice almost took the place of Albert after he died. She comforted Victoria, you know, she tried to be a stable presence, a rock, a rock that Albert had been. She didn't cry in her mother's presence, she held back her tears. She'd cry only alone in her room. She really threw herself wholeheartedly into making Victoria's life bearable. Alice didn't only give emotional support to her... Absolutely clung to her almost from the moment Albert died. In fact, one of the first things she did when Albert died was rush up to the nursery and grasp the sleeping child to her bosom and took Beatrice into her bed with her. Sweet little Beatrice comes to lie in my bed every morning, which is a great comfort. I so long to cling to and clasp a living being. Beatrice became a sort of mourning toy for Victoria. She cuddled Beatrice to her. And the image that always comes up is, is of her sort of almost like sucking the life out of it. It's almost vampiric, trying to extract something from her that really no four-year-old child can possibly give. Looking back on this, we could say that the way Victoria behaves towards Beatrice almost amounts to a sort of child abuse. Um, it has a very profound effect on Beatrice's psyche, on her outlook, on her whole personality, and it's hard not to see that as cruel. Beatrice was not alone. Albert's death seemed to intensify Victoria's darker side. All of the princesses were to be dominated by their self-obsessed, controlling mother. She really just felt that all she'd ever wanted was her and Albert, and she really makes the children feel dreadful about it. I mean, she seemed to have blamed the children very much. She would, have, I think, much rather have lost her children than her husband. Where once the royal homes, Windsor and Osborne, were places for fun and play, they were now mausoleums of grief. The oldest princess, Vicky... Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you, and have a great day.